Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. is the word of the day for September 10th. Today's a Friday. We're not going to have a show on 9-11. I want to take a few minutes, and I appreciate that you will grant me those few minutes. Do not pause. Do not fast forward, please, and don't stop downloading. But I think it's important to talk about 9-11, no matter how old you are, no matter where you're from, whether it's New York or the middle of the country or a different country. 9-11 is a day that changed the world. You don't know what day will be the day that changes the world. In 9-11, I was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. A lot of people have been asking me about where I was. I was working in baseball. I was the executive vice president of the Montreal Expos, but there was no one above me but the owner. So I was really the president. I just couldn't be named that because of the Canadian partners that we had. But in any case, I flew to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where there was an owner's meeting that was going to take place. When Bud Selig was commissioner, Bud Selig lived in Milwaukee, lives in Milwaukee, splits his time between Milwaukee and Arizona. And once a year, he'd always prefer to have one of the quarterly meetings in Milwaukee because then he wouldn't have to travel. And he liked his own bed. As I'm getting older, I can appreciate that. And he had one of the meetings in Arizona. So half the meetings, he actually got to be in his own bed. I flew in early. The meetings start on Wednesday. Owners meetings start Wednesday with always with committees. And uh, Thursday is the meeting, is the main meeting. I flew in on a Monday because I had family in Milwaukee and I was going, I'm not a golfer at all, but I had agreed to play nine holes of golf with my brother-in-law. His name is Gary. And I really had no great interest other than seeing him because I don't like golf and I don't recall ever playing nine holes. I would play in tournaments sometimes. Woke up on Tuesday, the 11th, I was staying at the Fister Hotel in downtown. That was our team hotel. And that was the hotel where you stayed at for owners meetings as well. It's the nicest hotel in Milwaukee. And I got in the car and I drove to a golf club, not a just a, like a golf course. It wasn't even a golf club. It was a public golf course to meet for an early nine holes because then I was going to go get to work. So I'm on the golf course early in the morning, very early in the morning. And I think it, you know, seven o'clock start maybe, and we're on the first hole or second hole. And I get a phone call from one of the two best men at my wedding. His name is Jeffrey, not the owner of the team. Jeffrey Stein actually is his name. And he called to say, hey, are you in New York? And I said, no, I'm in Milwaukee for the owner's meetings. And he said, well, a plane just flew into the World Trade Center. And I remember everything, everything about that moment and that day, because my reaction was, what, what, what do you mean? And he said, oh, it's a it's a small plane. 
It could have been someone who got lost. It could have been someone who uh, just made a mistake, fell asleep, had a heart attack. My first thought was someone had a heart attack and their plane flew into the World Trade Center. So I told Gary, hey, uh, can you believe that happened? And didn't think much of it. And a bit later, got a call from him again to say that a second plane had flown into the World Trade Center. And immediately that was it. I knew. And it, it's it's hard to explain how you know these things, except when you are running a, a business or a baseball team, a front-facing employee of a baseball team that you know is sort of a public entity. And you hear that a second plane flew into the World Trade Center. I knew immediately that uh, it was not a mistake. It was not two people who coincidentally had had a heart attack and flown into a building. And I said to Gary, we got to get off the course. And we went off the course and went to the clubhouse of this public course where it was on TV and it was being shown live. And I could see the smoke coming out of the World Trade Centers. And my first instinct was that I needed to call Jeffrey. Jeffrey was on his way to the airport on Long Island to fly with Fred Wilpon, the owner of the Mets, to Milwaukee. And I said to him, he had he was just leaving the city. I said, Jeffrey, are you aware of what's happening in New York? And he said, no. I said, there's two planes that have gone into the World Trade Center. You're not going anywhere. And at this point, they had not grounded all the flights. But I said, the, the, it's turn around, get home. He got in touch with Fred Wilpon, and the decision was made immediately that they were not going to fly uh, to Milwaukee for that meeting at that moment. And he turned around. And my next uh, call was to Jim Beatty, who was the general manager of the Expos at the time, and to PJ Loyello. Jim Beatty and PJ Loyello, the head of communications, were in Florida. Ironically, I had no inkling that I would end up in Florida for 16 years uh, starting the following year. They were in Florida and they were playing golf for real because the Expos were playing the Marlins and it was an off day. So the Expos were in Florida. And uh, I just recall that I said to them, we need to get and keep track of every one of our players right now. So get a roster list and start contacting players and finding out where they are. My next call was to the commissioner's office, which is, was at the first Wisconsin building that then became the first star building in downtown Milwaukee, because I said, well, I'm in Milwaukee. What are you doing right now? And they were obviously trying to figure out as we all were what was happening. And I said, I'll be right there. So I said goodbye to Gary. I drove back to the Fister. I got in the shower with the TV on and watching and I immediately went to the commissioner's office and there were very few people there. It was Rob Manford. It was Bud Selig. It was Bob Dupay, the president of baseball at that time. A few other major league baseball employees, but there were really no other team executives uh, who I can recall uh, who were there. And we're watching as the plane hits the Pentagon, as the World Trade Centers collapse. And I went into this bizarre sort of, uh, I remember this feeling, it happens when I'm doing a nothing personal show sometimes, where I lose track of where I am. I lose track of anything other than my focus on doing a 45 minute show for you every day. And I remember going into hyper logistics mode about what we were doing with 
Major League Baseball. The first question was, are we canceling tonight's games everywhere or just New York? When the plane goes into the Pentagon and we realize that the country is just under attack, complete attack, the immediate decision was made to cancel the games. We had spoken to people in our government affairs office in Washington trying to figure out exactly what was going on. We felt safe, as I recall, in Milwaukee. I had been trying to reach my wife at the time, who was the working in a school where I had a child in a school, and I had a young child who was with a nanny, and I was trying frantically to keep track and to reach out and reach them. But for the New Yorkers, you'll remember that all cell phones basically stopped working. You couldn't reach anyone. And so while I'm logistically trying to take care of work issues, I'm also dealing with family issues, just wanting to make sure they're okay. I knew they were on the Upper West and the Upper East Side. And what was going on was taking place down at the financial center at the World Trade Center. But at that time, we didn't know, is the entire island going to be bombed? Is the entire country going to be bombed? Were there going to be suicide bombers? All these things creep into your head and you're responsible for your family. You're responsible in your mind for the sport. People are asking questions. I'm getting phone calls left and right. The commissioner's office is getting phone calls from owners. So the first decision was to cancel all games on that Tuesday night. The second decision was to cancel the owners meetings because we didn't want other owners trying to fly in. This is before the planes have been grounded. We did not want other planes to be in the air because owners generally fly privately and we didn't want them to get stuck because there was some thought that what happens if the world is coming to an end? We wanted everyone to be with their families. I had no way to get back from Milwaukee. The first thing I did when the ownership meetings got canceled is I tried to see if I could fly back from Milwaukee to New York. And there was no way to get flights at that time at all. So I'm sitting at a table with the rest of with the commissioner and, and Rob Manford, and we start talking about what we're going to say. What is our what are our statements going to be? And as we're crafting a statement and Rich Levin was there, who was the head of PR for Bud Selig, and the statement had to be that we are all games will be postponed until further notice. And there was a statement that talked about, as I recall, or one of the drafts talked about the importance of baseball sort of as we and the importance of the day of, the, of this day, just trying to encapsulate what we were going through without knowing what we were going through, ironically. So then we started thinking about what we we're going to do as it related to the missed game, because these games had to be made up in our mind. We're going to miss one game. And then we quickly realized as the day went on, that it wasn't going to be one game that we couldn't play on Wednesday either. We realized we couldn't play Thursday. So the first thought was, okay, let's just cancel everybody's series. That was Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or Wednesday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, Thursday, whatever your series was. And maybe we start again on Friday. And then we quickly realized that missing only three days was not going under any circumstances to be enough. We hear from Washington that George Bush was going to address the country that evening. So the commissioner, we went to his favorite steakhouse. We got a private room and we had them bring a TV into the private room. There were about eight of us at dinner. 
I want to say it was called Gibson's, but that's not what it was called. It's a steakhouse in Milwaukee whose name escapes me, but right near the Fister, right on, not on Water Street. I, it's on a street that's just west of the river, I believe, or just east of the river, near the river. We get into the room. There's this eerie silence in Milwaukee. There's concern with all the people there. We knew we were stuck in Milwaukee. We knew that baseball was going to be postponed for what we thought would be three days. We then decided it would be six days. We knew that we were going to just postpone the season. Started contacting the broadcast networks, explaining to them what we were doing. And we came to the conclusion that everything would just be pushed back a week and we would try to start play on Monday. September, which would have been September 17th. And Coca, this is for memory. You'd have to go back to the first game where Mike Piazza hit the walk-off home run or the winning home run against the Braves and tell me whether that game was on September 17th of 2011. But that is my recollection. Once we realized that we had all the players taken care of with the Expos, which we did, there was one player who had taken the off day to travel and was stuck, and his name was Lee Stevens. Lee Stevens was in Chicago and could not get back to Montreal. And I was trying to figure out how I was going to get back. And I tried extremely hard to figure out whether or not I could fly. Could I drive? And there were no cars to be rented. There was nothing. We were just stranded. And the fear that we all had about would there be attacks the next day? I remember going to bed that night wondering about the fear. I remember going to bed thinking about what the future is of our country, what the war was going to be like. I knew that as Expos, we were going to New York to play in Shea Stadium and how that was going to be. Quick note, when we went to play the Mets in Shea Stadium after 9-11, was the day the war was officially started and the security at Shea Stadium, the security in our clubhouse, we had armed security in and outside our clubhouse. And I eventually was able to rent a car. I called Lee Stevens and Lee Stevens and I, first baseman for the Expos, we had traded for him, signed him to an extension. And I was close with him but we were not what I would call best friends, but we were, he was one of the guys, one of the leaders of the team. I called him and said, hey, Lee, I'm driving back to, I'm driving back to New York. There's no other way. Do you want to ride? And Lee said, yes, I've got to get back. So I picked up Lee Stevens at a rest stop between on I-94 between just outside of Chicago, between Milwaukee and Chicago. And we started a road trip. And remember I told you my May road trip of this year was the first time I did a solo road trip. That was the first time I did a road trip with someone else. Lee Stevens gets in the car and we're driving under empty skies. There's not one plane in the air. We, we tried to stop in every city to get on a plane. We ended up spending the night at a Detroit airport hotel in the bar with a bunch of other stranded travelers. And Lee Stevens and I ended up taking two days or three days to get back. And we were met before the George Washington Bridge by a driver who would take him to Montreal. And then I continued on to New York. And one of the images that sears in my mind 
is crossing the George Washington Bridge on another very clear day, looking downtown. And I'm a New Yorker. I'd grown up there my, my and I lived there for 30 years and there were no World Trade Centers. And it was a, a, a sight and a memory that is so imprinted in my mind, the fear, the uncertainty. So as I recall 20 years ago, thinking about what's taken place in the last 20 years, I'm saddened by the fact that on those that day and days following New York, there was a feeling of togetherness. There was a feeling of love between New Yorkers, a feeling of power. Rudy Giuliani was the second most powerful and most important man in the world at that time as the mayor of New York. It's hard to imagine given the person he has become. But at that time, he had his highest approval rating. He had a chance to really do anything. George Bush had really just become president. This was early in his presidency. The lost lives, 3,000 people on 9-11, that doesn't go away. When you're a New Yorker, every single New Yorker knew someone who knew someone. It's one degree of separation. I really hope it doesn't happen again. I really hope that home terrorism doesn't happen again, and then it does, and then it keeps happening, and it's, we call it domestic terrorism when there's shootings or people are dying. Doesn't everybody remember what it's like to be under attack? Is that how we want to live? I couldn't stand living that way. I couldn't stand feeling the responsibility of fans in a ballpark, feeling the responsibility of my family, feeling the responsibility for myself with everything that was going on around me, sort of juxtaposed against the togetherness that we all felt as New Yorkers, juxtaposed against the fight that we all felt against people who had done this when we were told it was Al-Qaeda and bin Laden. I hope that we have peace. I didn't feel it that day and bringing back all the memories and, and I didn't even suffer a first degree death. I just suffered trauma that in my mind is, uh, it doesn't go away. Every time there's a blue sky in New York City and I still am a part of New York City, I think about 9-11. Everybody who was in New York City or a New Yorker thinks about days like that. Everybody, when it's a blue sky, when I see low flying planes, it's the first thing that's in my head. I guess that's the definition of PTSD. Every time I see a low flying plane, I assume that it's going to crash. Every time I board a plane to this day, I'm looking at the captain. I'm looking at the passengers. I am profiling in my mind and then feeling guilty about profiling, feeling upset about profiling, feeling embarrassed about profiling. And then I didn't know who to profile because it didn't matter what color your skin was. Everyone was a danger, as I learned years past. And that feeling of anxiety, it's paralyzing. That feeling of fear, you can call me a wimp. You can call me a scaredy cat. I don't really care what you call me, to tell you the truth. But I'm just telling you that for those of us who were around on 9-11 and distracted by work and taking care of things you had to take care of, when it gets quiet at night, and the distractions go away, those feelings creep right back in. We'll, we'll be right back. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Nothing Personal. My name's David Sampson. Thank you for staying with us. It's the end of a, of a week. It's a Friday. No matter what we do, we still watch movies. No matter what the day is, we still watch movies every single day. I was introduced to a movie to watch yesterday, and I'd reviewed Malice in the Palace before, and I knew it was part of a documentary series called Untold on Netflix, but I didn't know what any of the other stories were. And Coca said to me, you've got to watch Crime and Penalties, the untold story. So I watched that yesterday. It's a documentary about a, a hockey team that I'd never heard of called the Danbury Trashers, owned by a mafia guy named Joey Galanti that he bought and gave to his son, AJ Galanti, to be the president of. So while I recognize the level of nepotism, I did not recognize the fact that he was 17 at the time where... I was 31 at the time, and uh, he ended up running a very interesting team in the United Hockey League, which is a minor league hockey league. And his goal was to basically fight his way to the top. And so he signed a bunch of players whose job it was to be like Slapshot, the Paul Newman movie, and the Hanson Brothers, which was one of his inspirations. And this documentary has everybody in it, talking about people in Danbury who went to these games, talking about the FBI trying to get the owner of the Danbury Trashers, Joey Galanti, and arrest him for his mafia ties with the Genovese crime family. This is all when, you know, Northeast Mafia was big time with John Gotti, et cetera. And what's fascinating, oh, Jimmy Galanti, thank you. I don't, what did I call him, Johnny? I don't know what I, why I did that. I called him Joey? <laughs> That's Joey Botafuco. No, it's, what is it, Jimmy? You, you, you say it one more time for me. Jimmy Galante was a trash guy. And uh, when you're a trash guy, and this, this is a general statement, and I don't mean any offense to those of you who are above board trash haulers, but you have to recognize that often, if you are in the trash business, guess what's going to happen? You are going to be in the mafia. So the FBI is going to investigate you. And they investigated, they arrested Jimmy Galante, he spent time in prison, and they shut down the Danbury Trashers after a year in which they lost uh, in the finals of the UHL with a Stanley Cup winning player on their team named Adolf Rupp. Um, that's definitely not his name. I just said Adolf Rupp, that is the Kentucky coach. Maybe it's Rapp or Rupp or Anthony Rapp, Mike Rupp. Thank you, Coca. Anthony Rapp is the guy from Rent, by the way, the Kevin Spacey guy. Anyway, Mike Rupp won a title with the, won a cup with the Devils. NHL goes on strike. AJ Galante says, why don't you come play for us? Rupp says, no problem. He goes to the Danbury Thrashers. They play games. They drop gloves right as the puck is dropped almost every game. And for an hour and a half, I'm watching this documentary and the only thing I keep thinking is, how have I not heard of this? Where was I? Now, granted, in 04, 05, I was in Florida and just focused on trying to get back to the World Series. But was I that clueless that there was this amazing sports story going on that I knew nothing about? 
It seems almost impossible. If you, and I'm going to review a bunch of other untold stories because now I want to watch the one about Marty Fish. I want to watch the one about Caitlyn Jenner. I already watched The Malice in the Palace. So this is a hell of a series by the Ways and Means Committee. So Untold is the name. Crime and Penalties is the specific episode. And the Danbury Thrashers Thrashers will become your team. And as a matter of fact, I think I'm going to go on Amazon after the show and buy a Danbury Thrashers shirt because they have to exist. I keep calling them Thrashers. I meant Thrashers. Thank you, of course. The Danbury. Did I call them the (laughs) Thrashers? 510-69. I'm going to go on Amazon and fi- see if I can find a Danbury Trasher shirt because they had amazing intellectual property, logos, just everything about them. They called themselves the bad boys. And yes, they were bad. It's called Untold Crime and Penalties. There are going to be some crime and penalties against Hunter Renfro because Hunter Renfro may have committed a crime. I'm not sure he's going to serve time. But it was something else. Did you see the news yesterday? Hunter Renfro is a player for the Red Sox of Boston. Hunter Renfro did the one thing we tell our players you better not do unless you are ready to prove the allegation. If you're going to go after MLB, they have more money than you do. They have a bigger ego than you do. They have resources in every city and they will crush you like a mosquito. So be very, very careful. Hunter Renfro was on a radio show with Lou Merloni. You know, the Red Sox have this COVID outbreak, right? They had 11 people test positive, nine, nine players, two staff. It started in theory with Kike Hernandez who was a former player of ours, who is now a, uh, a Red Sox. He signed that free agent deal. He ha- is vaccinated. He got COVID. And then the rest of the team got COVID. Hunter Renfro said that Major League Baseball basically told us to stop testing and just treat the symptoms. And the radio host said, well, I'm sorry, what, what does that mean? What, what happened? Are you saying that they told you to stop testing? He used the word basically. Now, of course, statements have come out since then. MLB saying, don't be ridiculous. We never did anything like that. It's absolutely wrong. The Boston Red Sox saying, we've been following every medical and safety protocol. John Heyman tweeting, MLB's done a million tests on the Red Sox. So I'm thinking, what went wrong here? And then I focused on the word Basically, I want to draw your attention to a litigation that I was in. A little detour here, Coca. Basically, when you say the word basically, what does that mean to you? Hey, are you done? I'm basically done. Are we there? We're basically there. Did he say that? He basically said that. Do we all agree that when you say we're basically there, that you're not there? That when you're basically finished, you're not finished. And when you're basically telling someone someone, telling someone something, you better be more clear because basically may not be completely. Back in 2001, after 9-11, 
negotiating to buy the Marlins, sell the Expos. There was a lawsuit brought against us by the partners we had in Montreal, by those local business behemoths who never wanted to put $1 into the Expos, might I add. And you know who you are. And they said that you never told us what you were doing. You lied to us about your plans. You always had plans to torpedo the Expos and move the team. Of course, we didn't move the team. We sold the team. And then we moved those limited partners to Florida, where they did get a World Series ring the next year, by the way. I wonder if they ever wear their World Series ring. The entire lawsuit was the word, basically. Because we were arguing that we said to them, we were basically finished. (laughs) And we said, basically finished is totally finished. And here's the proof that we have that we had done this, all the five things that we said we had done that were part of the lawsuit. We ended up winning in arbitration after many years. We then had a lawsuit about basically again with the Marlins where we prevailed when we were building a stadium and the word basically came up again. And I realized that I used the word basically to mean completely. But the truth is basically may not mean completely. So Hunter Renfro says, basically, MLB said to stop testing. MLB is going to have to absolutely come clean and say, you're out of your mind, Hunter. And here's the subject that makes it so interesting. Is it out of the realm of possibility that someone within Major League Baseball said to the Red Sox, hey, let's go full Trump here. The best way to get the numbers down and to pretend that no one's got COVID is to stop testing because only with testing do you find out if people have COVID. If you've got a cold or you're asymptomatic, just keep going. Don't get tested. And then we don't have to worry about COVID. You don't have to worry about positive tests. The problem is that people within Major League Baseball, A, they realize that line about COVID numbers in baseball doesn't matter because the show is going to go on and baseball has told the teams that you're fielding a team. We are not canceling games. We are not canceling postseason games. If you've got seven vaccinated people, all who have COVID, good luck. Find another seven players to play. If you have no manager or coaches, bring up your minor league managers and coaches. The show will go on. And once you've decided that the show is going to go on, then it doesn't really matter who's got COVID and who doesn't. It doesn't matter what your rate of testing is, what your rate of positivity is, because you're not shutting down. And MLB is at that place. Therefore, they would have zero incentive to say to the Red Sox to stop testing. Why would they even bother? And so they didn't. But Hunter Renfro is going to get a call. Rob Manford's deciding right now whether that call is going to come from Rob. Is it going to come from his number two, Dan Hallam, or is it going to come from Michael Hill, who handles all on-field issues and the umpires? I think Rob Manford is going to hand this off to Mr. Hallam. Mr. Hallam will call the union, tell the union to control 
their own players. That's a favorite move by MLB calling the union when players do something wrong to tell the union they don't have control of their players to plant the seed that maybe they don't have control over the players to plant the seed that they can divide and conquer during collective bargaining. If you wish something to be true enough, if you tell a lie enough times, it can become your truth. Perception can become reality. But then Dan is going to call Hunter himself and say, listen, Hunter, you better watch it. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Major League Baseball is raining down on your head. This story's over. Hunter Renfro. Come on, Hunter, be better. Players need to be better. I have a, a former player named Marcelo Zuna who is in trouble. He was caught abusing his wife. I've known him and his wife since, God, since the first time I met Ozuna. I've known Marcel, spent so much time with Marcel. I cannot tell you how upset I am when hearing about one of your players who you know, someone you like, someone you respect, someone who has troubles, problems, someone who should never manifest his problems through violence. There is a cultural issue that I've noticed that is not just Dominican, it's many, many people, whether you are white, black, brown, red, or purple, where sometimes you feel that divorce is not an option. You choose unhappiness. There's pride involved. But when that unhappiness gets to a certain level, you get so frustrated, so angry that you lose control of your emotions. Marcelo Zuna lost control of his emotions. He's been out since late May. I think he's been on the injured list since May 28th, maybe. And MLB has not decided what they're going to do with Marcelo Zuna. He had a chance to be charged with felonies. And in the end, he did not get charged with felonies. The district attorney's office decided they were going to charge him with misdemeanors. But just yesterday, Marcelo Zuna went into court in Georgia and he got a deal. And the deal that Marcelo Zuna got was to enter into what's called a diversion program. A diversion program is when you have to take classes. It's when you have to take anger management. It's when you have to not do drugs. You have to stay away from your wife, from your children. And he got six months of this. And if you complete those six months, then the charges will be dropped. If you do not complete those six months, then the charges will be activated and you will end up serving time. If you do everything you're asked in the first three months of this six month program, there's a chance that it only lasts three months, but it can never last fewer than three months. Never say never, but it won't last fewer than three months. So Marcel, if you're listening, do your work, get better. Get the help that you need to never do this again. Find a way to move on. Find a way to make it right with your child who saw something and saw her father do something that you would not want your daughter's husband to do to her. Find a way to treat what ails you, the illness that you have. But the problem you have with baseball the contract that you wanted for so long, Marcel, that you finally got from the Braves, 
It's gone now. MLB is going to suspend you for at least 100 games. It's a wait to see, as a matter of fact. Marcelo Zuna, while not being charged with a misdemeanor right now, MLB will finish its investigation, and MLB will soon announce that Marcelo Zuna will be suspended at least 100 games. That's almost another year in addition to the year that he has been out now. All the money you always wanted, Marcel, that you're now giving up, it pales in comparison to the reputation that you have now given up that you will need to spend a lifetime earning back. What you gain in years of community work, in years of your bright smile, gets lost like that. Can you imagine the sickness that you have to have Nothing personal pick of the day. We're going to do a bunch of things differently right now. You know, if you're a Mets fan, I'm sorry. We've talked about the Mets for so long. I'm not talking about them anymore. When you're going to lose two out of three to the Marlins, you're done. You're just done. We're 114 and 97 as the Mets lost to the Marlins. Another tight game, but it doesn't matter. You can't lose two out of three to the Marlins and think that you're going to play in October. You're just not. I'm not going to talk about Steve Cohn again tweeting how much he appreciates the passion that everyone has, all the fans have for the Mets. None of that matters. Just win games. We went one and one yesterday because I told you to watch a football game last night. The NFL season opened. I got to talk about the NFL for a minute. You know, in the NFL, you wear pads, you wear a helmet. It's a violent game. Players get concussions. The object of the game is not necessarily to put the ball in the end zone or put the ball through the uprights. The object is to get out all of your aggression that you have from off the field issues and pound opposing players. When you're a quarterback, you are in the line of fire every single snap on offense. I have no idea why the Cowboys were getting eight and a half points from the Tampa Bay Buccaneers other than people are so excited about Tampa to repeat as we talked about yesterday. The Cowboys covered, so we're 114 and 97. I'm watching that game, and I'm watching Tom Brady win the game in the last minute and a half. He's 44 years old. Just marinate for one second. Tom Brady is 44 years old, is the defending Super Bowl winning champion, the MVP of the Super Bowl. It's one game out of 17 but he's still one of the best quarterbacks in football. It's not like he's hanging on with a clipboard, not playing as a backup. This is the starting quarterback for the defending Super Bowl champions who drove his team, marched him down the field and beat Jerry Jones. Dak Prescott looked good coming back from his injury. The game has changed. You really don't need a running game anymore. You just need quarterbacks who can pass. And once in a while, if they can run, it's why Lamar Jackson, even with all the injuries, even with Coca giving up on the Ravens, there is still a chance for the Ravens to win that horrific division because Lamar Jackson by himself has a chance to win games with that sort of skill. It's why quarterbacks who have arms and the ability to pass downfield accurately, someone like a Patrick Mahomes, Tom Brady is not fleet of foot, but he continues to win. 
I started talking to Coco when we were reviewing the show last night and today about old guys who are playing. We came across Gordie Howe, who had a good season at age 52 in the NHL, which is insane. We came across Pete Rose, who was a productive hitter at the age of 45. It's unbelievable to me. Tom Brady's the greatest of them all. To be able to play at his position at 44 and do the things he's doing, if you do one thing, watch Tom Brady play before it's too late. I'm going to give you a weekend's worth of picks. I'm going to start with tonight. The Toronto Blue Jays swept the New York Yankees last night. The Yankees, you guys are funny Yankee fans. Fire Boone, fire Cashman, they're done. They win 13 in a row. Extend Boone, extend Cashman. We're the greatest for winning the World Series. They get swept by the Blue Jays. They go, they're two and eight in their last 10 at best. Lost four in a row at home to the Blue Jays. Fire Boone, fire Cashman, we're done. The roller coaster that the Yankees are putting you on with their inconsistency, don't worry, it'll be over soon. I have so many Yankee wait to seize, as you may recall. I've got the Yankees missing the playoffs after Cole lost that game. That was last week, Cole's last start with the hamstring. I've got Boone and Cashman not retur returning if the Yankees miss the playoffs. That's an old wait to see. We've got Cashman not being the GM of the Yankees in 22. All sorts of them. The Toronto Blue Jays, meanwhile, are, what are they, a half game back now of the Yankees? And guess what? They've got a say, Cy Young candidate going tonight. They sweep the Yankees and get to go play the Orioles. And guess what? The Orioles, who beat the Yankees two out of three, will not be taken lightly by the Blue Jays because the Blue Jays are hungry. They can feel it. They can feel Vladimir Guerrero trying to become the MVP over Shohei Otani, and he's deserving of it if the Blue Jays make the playoffs. And they've got their ace on the mound. This is a good pick. Robbie Ray and the Jays tonight over the Orioles. Tomorrow's 9-11, as you heard from the beginning of the show, and the Mets are playing the Yankees, which is a great bit of scheduling by MLB. The Mets will beat the Yankees. They've got Kluber going for the Yankees. The Mets on Saturday are going to counter, I think, with Walker. Doesn't matter. The emotion that the Mets feel, even though the Wilpons don't own the team, even though there's no more players there who played, obviously, in 01, there's something about being a Met after 9-11, even more so than being a Yankee. I like the Mets to beat the Yankees. One of the New York teams is going to be even more miserable after Sunday's three-game series than they are now. If it's a sweep of Mets over Yankees or Yankees over Mets, the recipient of the sweep is obviously finished. The sweeper is not necessarily going to succeed. I think it'll be a two out of three series, though. One of the teams will win two out of three. But that's what we're doing Saturday. And then Sunday, we've got a full slate of football. It is the debut of Trevor Lawrence with the Jacksonville Jaguars, the savior of the team, and the debut of Urban Oscar Meyer. They are only giving three points to the Deshaun Watson-less Texans. Seems like the most simple game of all time. That's why I'm taking the Texans plus three over the Jaguars. Somehow, Tommy Two-Tone will find a way. I think his name is Tyrod Taylor, actually. Somehow, somehow, the Texans will 
cover the spread. That's my Sunday pick. But we're also doing something that I'm announcing today. We're having a survivor pool. It's just me and Coca. A survivor pool, not the survivor season 41 that debuts on September 22nd. You have to pick a winner, not with the spread. I'm going against Coca. We're going to keep going till one of us wins. I'm taking the Bills over the Steelers. The Steelers have to be excited with TJ Watt getting the most guaranteed money following up on yesterday. They happened to agree with Ben Roethlisberger and they said, we're going to give him anything he wants. Of course, TJ Watt's agent came out and said, well, he could have gotten more, but TJ Watt wanted to settle for the most guaranteed money the Steelers have ever given out, even more so than Mean Joe Green got. The Steelers are primed to win a game but nope, they're playing the Bills, probably the second or first best team in the NFL. I'm taking the Bills. Coca, when he saw my Sunday pick, he loves Urban and Trevor and Jacksonville. He's actually taking the Jaguars over the Texans. The rule is you can only take each team one time. He said, what are you blowing your wad on the Bills right now? Playing such a tough game against the Steelers. I'm going to take the Jaguars over the Texans. I'm watching you, Coca. We've got a competition going. So to review the picks, take the Blue Jays over the Orioles on Friday, the Mets over the Yankees on Saturday, the Texans with the points on Sunday over the Jaguars, and the survivor pool is Bills over Steelers for Samson, Jaguars over Texans for Coca. That's the end of the week, and that's the end of the show. Thank you for being with us through everything we talk about, through the emotion of sports, through the love I have of sports and culture and business and politics and entertainment and sharing with me each day, each week. I appreciate you. Please have a safe, safe weekend. And remember, it's just business. This has been Nothing Personal. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.